Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, and what has become a rarity in the midst of the pandemic, we actually have a great guest in studio today. Uh, on a Friday, that's uh, just been such a rare treat. But Utah Senator Mitt Romney joins us in studio. We're going to hit a host of things uh, from what's happening in the state of Utah, what's happening nationally, internationally, and uh, even a little bit of Olympics before we're done. So I hope you uh, are fastened in, Senator, and uh, ready to go. Thanks, Boyd. Good to be with you again. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously, one of the big things on everyone's mind today is the issue between Ukraine and Russia and uh, the uh, just in the last hour, uh, of course, people continue to say uh, from the State Department that uh, could be Im- imminent. Uh, they've reemphasized the order for Americans to get out uh, within the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, as you've been able to watch and assess this, uh, where do you think we are and what are you watching for in the in the days ahead? Well, the Intelligence Committee uh, has been briefed on, uh, on what they're seeing. Uh, I'm on the Foreign Relations Committee. We likewise have been uh, briefed on, uh, on developments there. And it's fair to say that what Russia is doing along the border is not just amassing troops, but also mass- amassing all of the resources you need to take over another country. Mm. Uh, that's people to manage the various uh, agencies, to run the, uh, the utilities and so forth, uh, as well as putting in place the backup supplies you need for food and for blood and so forth. So you get the very clear impression, and without describing of any, anything of a classified nature, you get the impression that they're uh, intent on a full invasion. Um, you don't quite know what Putin is going to do until he's actually done it. But uh, this is an unprecedented thing. Since the Second World War, no major nation has gone to conquer another nation, replace its leadership, and put its own people in place. That hasn't happened. And for Russia to do this is a signal that uh, we're going to change the world order. Big nations are allowed to conquer their neighbors Mm. and uh, make them their, um, their slave states, if you will. And uh, this is something very dangerous. Obviously, that's the sort of thing that happened in the lead up to the Second World War. Uh, It often ends up involving other people like ourselves and leading to great casualties. Uh, And it's very alarming. And and Russia is proving once again that they are intent on malevolent activity. Yeah. And and Russia has always been able to uh, to needle and poke and and do things that uh, strengthen Vladimir Putin. Uh, You've had your eye on that for a, a very long time. Uh, and it's interesting to me that uh, even without invading, he's already wreaked havoc in a number of ways in terms of a lot of foreign capital being pulled out of Ukraine, uh, knowing that probably one of the worst things for Vladimir Putin is to have a successful uh, place where entrepreneurs and, and people being able to live their own dreams. Uh, that's got to be a threat uh, in terms of what's happening inside Russia. And t- tell me what you think uh, Vladimir Putin is doing on the inside game in terms of Russia and the Russian people. How does this play? Well, interestingly, inside Russia, they have been told time and time again through their media that America has massed troops along the border uh, of Russia. 
and that we and NATO are using Ukraine as a place to launch an attack on Russia. They're being told that we're the ones that are causing uh, the, the current turbulence uh, on their border. And, uh, and so a lot of Russians are angry at America and the West and, and Europe and NATO uh, and feel that Russia needs to stand up to protect its border. I mean, it's, it's complete propaganda and, yeah. and untruth. But that's becoming the way of international politics and, for that matter, domestic politics. Right. And, uh, and you can see where this, this sort of uh, misinformation leads. Um, uh, you know, I, I think Putin is doing what he thinks will be best for him in his domestic political mm-hmm. setting. But I think globally he has hurt himself very badly yeah. because NATO that he thought would be divided over this has come together over this. Um, and the people of Ukraine are a proud, independent people. They were uh, very much inclined to be very close to Russia. They're not so inclined now. Yeah. The people of Ukraine are very angry, very patriotic. And I would suspect that, in fact, if there is an, uh, an invasion and if their country is taken over by Russia, uh, that there will be a, an insurgency which uh, which is undertaken by people inside Ukraine, and Russia will be made to pay for a long time to come. Yeah, fascinating. I want to ask one other quick question as it relates to, to Russia. It also seems interesting that uh, the Russia-China alliance uh, seems to be bubbling up, especially with the threat of uh, Russia not being able to use the pipelines to get gas and oil uh, to uh, to Europe, uh, and China saying, well, we'll, we'll take some of that and, and that kind of alliance. Uh, what do you see happening between those two countries? Well, China is looking at what Russia is doing in Ukraine with great interest, in part because China would like to take over Taiwan. Uh, and, and again, these international affairs have a big consequence, not just for the people there, but also for us. Yeah. The reason we're involved in the world is because international matters affect us. Taiwan produces over half of the semiconductors in the world. Mm. Our technology industries here in the U.S., not to mention our cars, everything else we manufacture here, needs chips and one of the reasons we have the supply shortage we have of so many things is because we can't get as many chips as we'd like. Taiwan's very busy. Well, if China takes over Taiwan, guess who's going to have a hard time getting chips? Right. And guess who's going to get them instead? The Chinese. So China's watching what's happening to Russia as it looks to take over Ukraine. China's thinking, hey, if it's good, if they pave the way, we can take over Taiwan. And, uh, and so the consequences are severe, and China is obviously doing everything it can to make it easier for Russia to do something they'd like themselves to do as well. Yeah, shifting to more national uh, interests, of course, we continue to watch uh, the numbers that came out this week in terms of inflation, uh, 40-year high in terms of that. And this is one of those areas where it seems like the administration seems to have a bit of a disconnect uh, in terms of touting one thing, but the American people seem to be experiencing something vastly different. Uh, I know you're one who constantly looks at, at uh, the debt, the deficit, uh, and inflation. Uh, where are we on that, and uh, what is the turning point? How do we turn the tide on that? Well, as I look at where we are with inflation, uh, which obviously is very troubling, I mean, working families seeing 7.5% increase in the cost of things, uh, people become 7.5% poorer. Yeah. Uh, their ability to... Uh, perhaps go to a restaurant or to get medicines they need or to buy the clothes they want for kids, those things all get impaired uh, by virtue of this uh, this higher cost. Even if you get a raise, if it doesn't keep up with 7.5%, you're behind. And um, unfortunately, uh, what the president did after he came into office, even though in January checks were sent out to people and to governments of some $900 billion, 
the first thing he did in office was to say, I'm going to send out another $1.9 trillion on top of that, which made no sense at all. States and government, they are awash in money, and that's created extraordinarily high levels of demand, and that raises prices. And um, the best thing we can do right now is to pull back on government spending, uh, to take some of the slack out of the system so that we don't keep on driving prices up. Look, government having a ton of money that they're borrowing from the Chinese is not a good way to go. Yeah, definitely not a good strategy. Uh, I want to get to some of the things that are really impacting uh, kitchen table topics. Uh, One of the things that you have focused on of late uh, is the child tax credit uh, in part of many bigger packages. But uh, tell us some of the newer things that you're looking at and proposing uh, as it relates to the child tax credit. Well, as you probably know, uh, there is a child tax credit of roughly $2,000, which is applied per child uh, for a family that has kids. The tax credit comes at the end of the tax year. Uh, It is only a credit which is applied against whatever your tax liability might be. So that means for people of very modest means that perhaps have no tax liability, Mm -hmm. they get no benefit at all because it doesn't offset their taxes. So I'm looking to change that and to say, look, instead of having a a credit that you get at the end of the year, let's let people get a check every month per child up to five kids. uh, And uh, that allows them to see the money at a time when actually they could be paying for books and for clothing and for food and so forth for their children. Uh, And also, let's not worry about how much money they made to decide whether they get that check. So let's make it something they can plan on. And why am I doing that? Well, I'd like to see us encourage people to have kids. We hear from a lot of people that they'd like to have a child or another child, but they can't afford it. Mm. And this is just a a helpful way to give a little more support to those that would like to be able to have more kids. Yeah. And one of the things that you've uh, proposed is uh, not just for those children that are here, but the the yet to be born uh, child tax credit, which is is such an important thing, both in terms of the message I think it sends in terms about life. Uh, but also helping especially those low-income families uh, who during that pregnancy period uh, could really use some of that uh, help as well. You're absolutely right, which is these checks that go out per child also begin as soon as the mom is pregnant. Uh, I should say as soon as she's four months pregnant. So once she's four months pregnant, she'll start getting these checks of $350 a month. Uh, And why? Well, so she can afford health care. Uh, yeah. so she could afford also perhaps to get a, you know, bassinet and a crib and so forth. It's just helping out. Yeah. Is it enough to uh, compensate for the cost of a child? No, no. <laughs> but is it, but is it some help? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, that's such an important part of that uh, process. Uh, I want to shift now to the, to the Olympic games. Obviously, uh, Utah's a, a, a great state in terms of, I think we're, we may be the only state in the country that's really all in on, on the Olympics still. Uh, you had a unique role of that, obviously, 20 years ago in, in uh, 2002. And I want to talk about something specific uh, to that before we project forward on the Olympics. And that is when you came in to, to help with the Olympics in 2002, uh, of course, you had the scandal issues and some challenges. You had 9-11. You had sponsors and advertisers pulling out. Uh, it was not a pretty picture. Uh, but one of the first things you did, uh, and I will never forget, is you kind of laid that out that – one, Utah's going to be the place that, that saves the Olympic movement and sets it on a, on a better path. And then you did uh, the extraordinary of just really looking down the barrel of the camera, so to speak, and saying, we need your help. And uh, Utah's responded in a really extraordinary way. And it seems to me one of the things we're lacking in the country is leaders who can do both of those things. One, speak truth of, yeah, this is a big challenge or we have a real problem. And 
I need your help to actually solve it. You know, it seems that we could be motivated either by anger and resentment on one side or by uh, the need to help other people. And and people can be motivated by one or the other. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's, you know, are better angels yeah. or are less good angels. Yeah. And uh, I happen to believe that if we came to the people of Utah honestly and said to our fellow citizens, we need your help. We're about to host the world. We need 25,000 of you to go to work for 17 straight days with no tickets to any events, typically outdoors in the cold uh, and uh, no vacation time. All right. And we need you to sign up. And we wondered, will people sign up? I mean, we're not a huge community, and 25,000 is a lot of people to do that. So we opened up the portal. We advertised on KSL and said, you can sign up now. Go on our website and sign up. We had some 47,000 people sign up in just the first few days. It was absolutely unbelievable. It literally brought tears to my eyes. Uh, And so we had more people sign up than we could actually use. Uh, And uh, so we winnowed the group down based on their time and capacity uh, and produced what I believe, well, actually the head of NBC Sport, Dick Ebersol, Mm -hmm. said these were the most successful games in his entire career. And um, I I believe that's an accurate assessment. I'd also note we produced, I looked over the last 20 Olympics. This is summer and winter. Ours were by far the most economic. And we had a $100 million profit at the end we could put into an endowment to maintain our Olympic facilities. Yeah, so important and such a great model. And, of course, now we're watching China and and, uh, everything from what we know is going on there in terms of human rights, uh, religious persecution, in terms of the the Uyghur uh, minority population there. Uh, Give us your assessment in terms of, obviously, the Beijing Games, but what's the real path forward in terms of the Olympic movement? Well, I think the International Olympic Committee choosing Russia uh, with Sochi uh, and then Russia invading uh, Ukraine to pick up Crimea after that, then choosing Beijing at a time when a population of some one million people are in concentration camps uh, and suffering genocide at the hands of the Chinese. I think the IOC making those choices very much threatens the Olympic movement. Um, It's also threatened by doping. And we heard just uh, over the last day or two that yeah. the uh, young woman who is slated to get the gold medal from Russia uh, has been found to have been doping in the past. Uh, this is an ongoing pattern with the Russians. These uh, these uh, are real blows to the Olympic movement. And the Olympics are going to have to deal with these things or people are going to start tuning out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know that the... The, the number of people watching the Beijing games, particularly the opening ceremonies mm-hmm. where China is touting itself, those numbers have dropped way off here and around the world. And uh, I, I, I really think the IOC is going to have to rethink yeah. uh, how they decide to award games, giving games to authoritarian regimes that are oppressing their own citizens and their neighbors is just a non-starter, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's uh, so fascinating to look at how that plays out and what actually comes next uh, in terms of the Olympic Games. Uh, just a uh, a favorite component to the Olympic Games. Uh, you've been exposed to it from top to bottom, left to right. Uh, what's it that you, when you think of the Olympics, what, is, what does it mean in your world? Well, there are two parts of the Olympic experience for me and for volunteers and for people who worked at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Uh, the, the one part is the athletes, and they do not fail to inspire. I mean, in, in the games we're watching right now, uh, you have someone like uh, like uh, Brittany Bow, who uh, is a speed skater, and uh, one of her uh, teammates 
uh, slipped on, on a qualifying meet, someone who was slated to be the best and get right. a gold medal. And Brittany Bow gave up her own slot to compete in that event so that this person who would not have been able to go to the Olympics was able to go and compete. I mean, this is the, the kind of inspirational thing that happens inevitably in every games. And that's really the heart of the Olympics for many of us. For those of us who actually were volunteers or worked at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, there's also the relationship we had with one another. And we established friendships and rapport that has lasted over the years. We're going to have a dinner tonight of several hundred of the people that were part of the Olympic Organizing Committee, just coming together, reminiscing and talking about what's happened in our lives since. But this was one of the great experiences. For me, it was the most powerful personal experience I've had of a career nature because we all worked together. We all came together. We all knew we'd lose our job at the end of the Olympics. We were all getting fired because the games were over. They're over, yeah. But So we all worked to have successful games without worrying about who got promoted and who got how much money. Made no difference. We're all leaving. And so we worked together for a common goal. Uh. Uh, I love that. And that uh, that common goal, I think, is what uh, we have to get back to. Just 30 seconds, Senator. Uh, what are you looking for in, in 2022 uh, for the United States and, and your role in the Senate? Well, I'd like to see the president stop doing things that are hurting our country and, and, and the inflation that, that, that he has helped fuel with his excessive spending and borrowing is hurting our country. I'd like to see us have a stronger relationship with our allies. That's something there is an effort underway to do that. I'd like America to understand that China is not our friend right now. They're a competitor. It could get worse, and we have to find a way to deal with China. And then I want to make sure that we do some things for rural Utah and for rural parts of our country, better broadband, better communication, better jobs. That's part of what I hope we can get done. All right, Senator Mitt Romney joining us in studio today. Hour number two of Inside Sources coming up next. Stay with us. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.